Welcome to the sermon podcast for the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. This fall, we are studying one of the most challenging and difficult to understand books of the whole Bible, Revelation. But what we will find as we study this book is that God is reframing our reality through what he teaches us in it. If you're in town and would like to join us in person, our services are at 8.30 and 10.30 on Sunday mornings at 3410 Granny White Pike, Nashville, Tennessee. You can be seated. Good morning. Wow, that was, that was awful. I love you. Uh, my name is Gary Anderson. I serve as the pastor here at Midtown Fellowship Granny White. Uh, so glad that you are here. It is so good to be in God's house together this morning. Uh, there are some weeks, um, I always feel the weight of getting up and preaching, but there are some weeks where it just feels really heavy to stand up here and say this is God's word, and I feel that this morning. Um, And maybe that's because we are sadly or mercifully (laughs) wrapping up the book of Revelation this morning. Um, But it is a a joy to be here nonetheless. Uh, I am going to invite my friend Julie Hunt up. Hello, Julie. Welcome. You guys can welcome Julie, please. Thank you. She's going to read our text for this morning. We are at the very end. We are on the last page of the last book of the Bible. Uh, Revelation 22, we're starting in verse 6. So Revelation 22, starting in verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Julie. Um, I, I was going to say I hate endings, but then I remembered there are some endings that I, I actually have liked, and so I don't love endings is what I want you to know. Um, I... There have been some jobs I left that ended, and I was kind of happy for those to end. I've lived in Cleveland, Chicago, Buffalo, and Boston, and I was never sad to see winter end. So there are some endings that have been good. But in general, in general, I don't love endings. I can still remember exactly where I was and exactly how I was feeling when I finished Where the Red Fern Grows. I'm not crying. You're crying. Okay? Uh, I can still remember uh, watching, uh, sometime in high school, I don't remember what year, I can still remember watching the last episode of Seinfeld, which had just been a dear friend through my middle school and high school years. And that was in the days before streaming and on demand. And so you had to actually tune in at 8 o'clock on Thursday nights to watch it. And I just, it was really sad to think that there would never be another episode. Felt the same way about The Office, though now I have watched it many times since then. So we revisited that old friend. Uh, And maybe the most, like when I think about my life, when I think about the most harsh uh, ending that I've ever experienced, I think this is it. I think it was my sophomore year of college, home for Christmas break, the Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring had just come out in theaters, went with my family to watch it. I had had not read the books. And I don't know if you remember getting to the end of that first movie, but it was like when you have a sneeze that's about to come and then it never actually comes and you're just like, oh, that's the worst feeling. That first uh, first movie in that Lord of the Rings trilogy, it just like ends mid-sentence. You're just like, it's just starting to pick up steam. It's just starting to get good. And then the credits start to roll. And I was I felt like, I was so, angry is not the right word, but maybe a little bit angry. I was just sad because I was really getting into it. So I went home and I read all three Lord of the Rings books that week. And then I was sad when those ended. So I don't, I don't love endings. Um, we all will experience a lot of endings in our life. We all go through a lot of season changes. But for some of us, the most obvious, clear, and sometimes severe endings in our lives are when educational experiences end. So When high school ended, I was sad. When college ended, I was sad. When seminary ended, I was not so sad. I was glad to see that one end. Uh, But those other two, when they ended, I was sad. And here's what, I think we actually do this really well in our society. We throw, we have a celebration when educational experiences end. We have a big gathering of everybody, a big party, and we call it a graduation. But there's another word that we use for it. What else do we call graduation uh, ceremonies? commencements. Uh, I was a full-grown adult when I realized that commencement does not mean ending. Some of you are today years old when you realized (laughs) that commencement does not mean ending. What is a commencement? It's a beginning. Yeah. So isn't that kind of weird that we call the last ceremony in our educational experience a commencement? I actually think that's really kind of cool and it's actually kind of spiritual. Because in every ending, there's a new beginning. And so the idea of a commencement ceremony is the idea that, yes, something is ending and dying, but something new is coming to life, and we're going to celebrate that there is something new that's about to happen. Now, commencement addresses are notoriously lame. They are typically very boring. They're, now, 
in defense of those who give commencement addresses, uh, the audience is not really there for you, right? It's a little bit like the homily at a wedding. Everybody's there for the party afterwards, and so they just want to kind of get through whatever the speaker has to say. But there are a few commencement addresses down through history which have been really outstanding. And if we're basing this on public opinion, one of the greatest commencement speeches of all time happened in 2014 at the University of, Te- University of Texas, Austin. Nobody? Had a hook em horns in the first service. There we go. Yep. Uh, 2014, the commencement speaker was uh, four-star Admiral William McRaven, who's a former Navy SEAL, and he gave a master class in giving a commencement address. He spent 20 minutes giving really practical advice to a bunch of students, a bunch of kids who are about to set out on their new adventure. It, that speech has been viewed over 60 million times on YouTube. Some of you have seen it. He gave 10 things, 10 things that those kids should do as they headed out into a new season of life. Does anyone remember what the first one was? Make your bed, which is not in the Bible, but is a great piece of advice. (laughs) There would have been some uh, amens for me had I been there that day, because uh, if you make your bed first, you've already accomplished something and it sets you up for the rest of the day. And this is just my opinion. just, Just take it for what it's worth. I hate getting into an unmade bed at the end of the day. It's so much better to get into a made bed. So make your bed. That's not the point of the sermon. The reason that speech went viral is because, uh, yeah, he was humble. Yes, he was humorous. Yes, he had a ton of life experience and real world experience that kind of undergirded what he was saying. But I think the real reason that that speech went so viral is because he communicated some really practical things that really resonated with people. Here's the truth about all of us we are all looking for some direction in life. We are all looking for some help with how do I navigate what I'm doing on a day in and day out basis. We are all looking for someone to speak into our lives and give us an idea of what should we do and how should we live. It's why parents, it's why coaches, it's why mentors, it's why managers, frankly, it's why social media influencers All of those people play such an outsized role in our lives because we are all looking for someone to help us to know what to do. And as we come to Revelation 22, we are going to get God's commencement address for all of Scripture. We are coming to the end and the bitter, bitter end today. Not only are we finishing the book of Revelation, but we are at the very end of the Bible, the end of God's revealed, inspired word. This is the last page. It's page 1042 in my Bible. And at the the risk of kind of like cheapening God's word, because we all know this is not really a commencement address, I think that helps frame what is happening in Revelation 22, 6 through 21, as we try and understand what is God through Jesus, through John, trying to communicate to us in these last things that he says uh, before essentially he is about to return. And he is giving us a commencement address. Look, something is ending, scripture, the vision of Revelation, but something new is beginning. And there are some things I need you to know as my followers, as my disciples, as my children. There are some things, some really practical things I want you to know. Here is how you are to live until I come back. Some of those things are explicit, like in verse 9. Worship God. 
That's a command. That's a good one. That's part of why we gather here every morning, every Sunday morning. Wow. It'd be awesome if it was every morning. I'm down for that, but maybe not everybody is. Uh, there are some explicit things. There are, there are a bunch of implicit things. And that's what I want to kind of try and dig through this morning. What are some of the things that Jesus is saying to us in Revelation 22? Like last thing he says before, essentially he's come, not essentially, before he comes back. This is, this is your graduation speech. Here's what you need to know as you head out into the new adventure. Three things I want to draw out. And here's the first one. The first thing that I think Jesus is communicating to us in Revelation 22 is this. Live with urgency. Live with urgency. So you will hear me say this a lot as I have the opportunity to uh, talk about God's word with you all. When something is repeated in scripture, that's generally a decent sign that it's probably important. That's actually a good one for life. Like when something is repeated, probably a good chance that it's important or someone wants you to get an idea. So this, uh, Revelation 22, 6 through 21, is not a really like nice, tight, compact one unit of thought. There's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of sayings from John. Jesus kind of interjects, then goes away, then comes back. But there is one theme that runs through all 15 or 16 of these verses that just shows up over and over. Three times we get the exact same sentence. And what is it? I am coming soon. Okay, but that's not just those three times. Verse six, uh, he has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse seven, behold, Jesus talking, I am coming soon. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. Then skip down to verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Okay, five times there is a reference to the fact that Jesus is going to come back soon. Now, let's just try and deal with the, uh, the elephant in the room as it relates to these sayings from Jesus. Uh, we believe that Jesus died, rose, and was ascended sometime around AD 33. We believe the book of Revelation was written sometime in the AD 90s. So Jesus said, I'm coming soon. And right now we're pushing about 2,000 years. So what does that actually mean when he says, I am coming soon, right? Because there's a lot of us who are like, would love for you to follow through on what you said you were going to do. There's a lot of us who life is not like, this is kind of hard. There's some really challenging things. It's not the way I was hoping that it would go. I would love for Jesus to fulfill his promise that he is coming soon. What is going on here? It's been a long time. A couple of things that will maybe help us frame it. The first is this. 2 Peter 3, 8 and Psalm 90, verse 4, both essentially say the same thing. They both say that a thousand years is like a day when it comes to God's timing. So I don't believe those are meant to be literal. That's hyperbole. That's helping us understand that God doesn't work on our timeline. But if we do take it literally, a thousand years is like a day. It's been two days since Jesus said I was coming. I'm coming soon. And so like in my book and probably most of yours, that's still in the category of soon, right? Okay. Here's the other thing we need to understand. So the Bible gives, the, the, like, part of the reason we have the Bible is it explains God's plan for how he's going to save the world. And so some of you will be familiar of like the, the big overarching story of scripture, which sometimes is presented like this. It's creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration or consummation. And so in the economy of God's plan of salvation, what has happened so far? Creation, fall, decreation, counter-creation, sin, broken relationship with God, many, many years of people acting like idiots. Jesus is sent dies on a cross, 
rises three days later in the power of God's Holy Spirit, pays the penalty we could never pay for sin, offers the opportunity for relationship with God to be restored, ascends to heaven, and then what's the next thing to happen? It's not a trick question. He's coming soon. And so everything up to this point has already happened. So like steps one, two, three, four, and five have happened in God's economy, in God's plan of salvation. And so the next thing to happen is that Jesus returns. And so in some sense, that's what Jesus might be referring to when he says, I'm coming soon. That just means it's the next thing that's going to happen. So here's what I hope we can, here's what, here's what I want to see in what Jesus is saying here when he says, I'm coming soon. He is not speaking to us in a chronological way. He is not trying to give us a timeline where we can time it up like the UPS delivery that needs a signature. And so we got to figure out how to be home at the time that it gets delivered so we don't get one of the sticky notes and they come back tomorrow. And they... That is not the point of what Jesus is saying when he says, I am coming soon. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to live with urgency. Whether I come back tomorrow or a hundred million years from now, that should not change the way you go through your time in this life. Because you are to live as if I am coming soon. The timing doesn't really matter. It's about the posture in which you go through your time on this earth. And that is to be a posture of urgency. Because I'm coming soon. Now, I think we all understand that based on other experiences in our life. So if you have ever been on a car trip with little kids, whether they're yours or someone else's, you understand what's happening here when Jesus says, I am coming soon, right? Because what happens 10 minutes into a road trip with little kids? What is the, what is the question that begins to get asked over and over and over and over? How, yeah, or, or another version, how long till we get there? And what is the only possible, proper, ever, only, only the right answer that you can ever give to that question? Soon, yes, because it doesn't matter if it is 34 minutes or 34 hours away. The only thing that child needs to know is that we will get there soon. Because that child doesn't even have a concept of time anyway. It's like, you know, we'll be there in 250 Bluey episodes. Like that means, that means nothing to them. All that they need to know is that the next major event in their life, outside of the restrooms at Bucky's is going to be the arrival at their destination. Again, whether that's 20 minutes or 20 hours away, it is coming soon. And that is what Jesus is communicating to us in Revelation 22. I am coming soon. And whether that's tomorrow or 10,000 years from now, what's that to you? You live with urgency. You live as if I am coming soon. Now, some of you are probably like, you're talking a lot about this. Like, what is it? Urgency. Like, what does that even, what does that even mean? What does it mean to live with urgency? Well, like, think about some other areas of your life. What does it look like to do your job with urgency? What if you have a big deadline coming up and you are doing your work urgently? What does that look like? It means you're really focused. It means you're pushing out distractions. It means you're not scrolling Twitter. It means you're not taking a two and a half hour lunch break. It means you know that there is a deadline. You know there is something coming and you are putting all your energy, effort, and attention into into diligently doing whatever the task is at hand. 
That is, what does it look like for a sports team to play with urgency? They're behind, time is running out, they're not messing around with the ball, they're not doing extracurricular stuff that's not, they're focused on one thing, and that is scoring points or scoring goals or whatever it is that they need to do. They're playing with urgency. What does it mean to do your life with urgency? It's the same thing. It's to be focused. It's to be disciplined. It's to be, uh, it's to have a vision of what you are aiming at and moving towards it. It's to not waste time. It's to not waste energy. It's to not waste resources. It's to not scroll through Twitter. It is okay to take a two hour lunch every once in a while, as long as you're not under like a really tough time frame at work. But Jesus is saying, I need you to live life with urgency. And here's, here's my fear. And I, this is my fear because, because I feel it, because I struggle with it. My fear is that a lot of us are not living our lives with urgency. <laughs> my fear is that a lot of us are living our lives as, is, as if Jesus said in Revelation 22, behold, I ain't coming back for a long time. So get yours first. I think there's a lot of us who are living our lives like the whole, um, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I think a lot of us are like, well, that's way, way out there. And so... I can kind of get mine first. I can kind of build my little kingdom. Uh, I can kind of do the things that I want to do. I can kind of try and satisfy my desires and my curiosities and kind of get the things checked off on my uh, bucket list that I want checked off. And there will be plenty of time to kind of shift that around and start living the way that Jesus calls me to before he comes back. But that is not what Jesus says in Revelation 22. He is not saying, I'm coming back in a long time from now, so you all have fun, and I'll let you know before I start coming, and you can kind of figure it out then. He is saying, I am coming soon. And so we are to live as if that is true. There is a bigger, wider, more important game than the one we play daily in our little circles. And Jesus is saying, I need you to have that bigger game in mind as you work through uh, the life that I have put before you here. He is calling us to live with urgency. All right? Here's the second thing that I think he's calling us to do, uh, and that is to invite others in. Jesus calls us to invite others in. Look back with me at verse 17. This is what it says, just the first half of the verse. It says, the spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come. Now, who is the spirit? Not a, tr- not a trick question, people. It's capitalized. The Holy Spirit, okay? There's one spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, okay? Who is the bride? Yeah, it's us. It's the church. And can I just keep it really real with you right now? Uh, I always thought when I read this verse that this was saying that the spirit and the bride are calling to who? Jesus. I always thought this was the spirit and the bride are saying to Jesus, come, like come back. Like the city of Babylon is a train wreck and we need you to come and do what you promised you're going to do. The spirit and the bride are calling to Jesus and saying, come. Uh, But several, most of the scholars I read this week as I was studying this passage said, actually in the context of the rest of verse 17, where it says, let the one who is thirsty come, who is clearly not Jesus, they said, actually, the spirit and the bride are not calling for Jesus to come. They're calling for the world to come. The spirit is part of the Trinity. Like he doesn't need, he, he has Jesus already. He doesn't need more of Jesus. He's got all of Jesus. He's, he's in a perichoretic relationship with Jesus. It's a seminary word, right? I don't know what it means, but uh, it sounds really, really good. 
uh, the church, the bride. Yeah, now obviously we, are, we want Jesus to come. That's the longing of our hearts, and we'll get to that in the, the third point of the sermon. But here's what, what John is saying, what Jesus is saying through John. We are to live with a posture of invitation. Jesus is like, I, I recognize it's tough in the city of Babylon, and I'm sovereign, all-powerful. I could have taken you home with me and been done with this whole deal, but I didn't, and it's not an accident. I left you there on purpose. And this is one of the themes of Revelation. We talked about this in several other passages in Revelation. The church's job is to witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And we are to do that not just amongst ourselves, but outside of these four walls. This community exists to tell the broader community about what we have experienced, about who Jesus is, and about the rivers of living water that we have gotten a small taste of because we have come to him. We are called to invite others in to what we are experiencing. Uh, for several years in my, it feels like several lifetimes ago, but um, it was only like 10 years ago, uh, I was really into road cycling. So that literally means I spent a ton of time dressed up in neon spandex, <laughs> shaving my legs. Seriously, did that because that's what cyclists do. And I spent as much time as I could on my bike riding around um, trying to get faster on a bike. The reason I was really into cycling is because about 12 years ago, my best friend was really into cycling. I could have cared less about it. I had no interest in it. I had no affinity towards it. I didn't think Lance Armstrong was that nice of a guy anyway, and that was before all the other stuff came out. Like, I I had no interest in it, but it was his passion, and we were really good friends. And so one day, he invited me to go with him. And he gave me his fancy carbon road bike, and he rode on his old aluminum mountain bike. And it was cool, and I liked it, but he was so passionate about it that it rubbed off on me. I wasn't like, man, I wish someone would just invite me to go cycling because I'm just so interested in that, and if someone would just invite me, then I could get into it. No, I was just like, I liked him, and he was into it, and by him inviting me to do it with him, I actually fell in love with it myself, and that is what God is calling us to do. That is what God is calling us to be. We are to be an inviting community. Uh, There is a reason that you live in the house you live in or the apartment you live in in the neighborhood you live in. There's a reason you are at the job that you are at. There's a reason that you go to the gym that you go to. There's a reason that your kids go to the school that they go to, that they play on the sports team that they they play on. And the reason is not so you can just kind of have a nice, comfortable, fun life in all these different circles that God has put you in. You are in those places to be an inviter. Those, those, are, those are intentional gospel relationships where you can invite people into what God is doing and has done for you in this place. Now, I know for a lot of us that's like scary and we don't want to do that, but just think about the cyclist. Like there are a ton of people you know who if you were like, uh, would you like to come to church? Like a bunch of adults sing songs and some of them close their eyes and some of them put their hands in the air and then um, this guy gets up and he talks about the Bible for a little while. They would be like, I have no interest in that. But we know if they were to experience what is happening in this place, it would transform their lives. We are called to invite others in. Listen, we do not exist here at Midtown Fellowship Granny White to um, build a, a fun little club for ourselves. We do not exist here uh, to put on as good a show on Sunday morning as we can to try and gather as many people into these seats as we can on a Sunday morning. 
we would, they, would, they would have had to hire a much better preacher if that was the goal here at Midtown, Granny White, Midtown Fellowship Granny White. Uh, we do not exist to face in. We do not exist to come to a place where everyone looks like us and sounds like us and grew up like us and we feel good about hanging out with them on Sunday mornings and on Tuesday nights at small group. We exist to face out. This is not the game. This is the huddle. The game is out there. And God has left us in the city of Babylon, not so that we can just endure it until he returns, but so that we can bring some small amount of his light into the darkness that is everywhere. We are here to push back on the city of Babylon. We are here to take territory back from the city of Babylon in the name of the city of God. And the way that we do that is not by going out there and telling them how sinful and wretched and horrible they are. It is by inviting them in. We do not take back territory for for the city of God by telling people to go. We take back territory by inviting people to come with love and grace and humility because but for the grace of God go we. We are called to invite people in. All right, live with a sense of urgency. Live with urgency. Invite people in. And here's the, the last thing that I think Jesus is telling us. He's saying, this is how I want you to live before I return. Uh, and it is, stay thirsty. My friends, come on, come on. He's saying, stay thirsty, my friends. Just, and this is just the second half of verse 17. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Uh, this is a really direct allusion. It's not quite a direct quotation, but it's a really direct allusion to the scripture that Kevin read for our call to worship. Uh, recognize that many of you weren't in here for that, so let me read it again. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not mad. Just disappointed. <laughs> Isaiah 55.1. Isaiah 55.1, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, if we remember the context for the book of Isaiah, what is the prophet Isaiah's message to Israel and Judah? It is, this is like, I can boil that 66 books down into a couple sentences. Y'all have really messed it up. And there are major consequences coming because of your failure to walk in the way that God called you to walk but it will not always be that way. Even though you are going to live in cities that are under siege, even though you are going to watch the people you love be killed, even though you are going to be uh, deported and live in a foreign land, even though you're going to be poor and prisoners and have nothing, one day God will return and make all things right. It won't always be this way. And one day, even though you can't fathom that you would have enough milk and wine and whatever else is referred to in Isaiah 55.1, one day you will come and get those things and you won't even have to pay for them. It will be so abundant. And here we come to the very end of scripture, God's divine commencement address. And he circles back to what the prophet Isaiah said almost 800 years before John is writing the book of Revelation. And he says, you all are going to be really thirsty. But one day that thirst is going to be quenched. One day that thirst is going to be satisfied. And so what I think is implicit in that verse, in that text is this, it is good to be thirsty. Jesus is saying, stay thirsty, my friends. 
because the city of Babylon is going to offer you so many things that look like they will quench your thirst, but they will always disappoint you. I am the one that will quench your thirst. Stay thirsty until I satisfy you. Have you ever been really thirsty? The last time I was really thirsty was August. We were on, um, they kind of laughed when I said that in the first service too. Like, (laughs) it's not a joke. I stay very well hydrated, okay? It's very important. Water is very important. So it's good to stay hydrated. Um, But it was August. We were on a little vacation in the mountains, and we decided that we were going to go up and hike. Well, it's not really. I guess it's a little hike. We were going to go do that little tower on Klingman's Dome. I guess it's not that little, but there's a tower up on Klingman's Dome. And so uh, we're we're usually pretty prepared. Um, My wife is the master of bringing snacks, uh, because she has learned to do life with me. Snacks are very important uh, when the hanger sets in. Um, we were one of maybe 6,000 other families that decided to do that same thing on that same day. And so we drove all the way up there into the mountains, and the line just to get into the parking lot was miles back on the road. And just a little insight into Pastor Gary's personality, we were there. And we were going to do it because we have come this far and we're not turning around now, right? So we wait forever, finally get a parking spot, hike up to the little watchtower. And then always the plan was we were going to do a little hike out to like a little vista point that goes from the Klingman's Dome parking lot. But we had been there so long already and we all had a water bottle, but we didn't have enough water. And so all of us ran out of water before we got back from that hike. And uh, like before, you know, before you call Department of Child and Family Services, like it wasn't that bad. Like we were, we were doing okay. Um, but we were all really thirsty. You know what it's like to be really thirsty? You're, you're, you're parched. You're, your lips are chapped. Uh, your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth. And you're pretty angry. Maybe that's just me. Um, but here's the deal. Besides like the physical manifestations of thirst, you can't think straight. You can't think about anything else except satisfying your thirst, except quenching your thirst. All you want is cold water. You don't want like, you don't want hot coffee. You don't want wine. You don't want beer. You don't want a milkshake. You just want cold water. If someone had offered me like a double bacon cheeseburger with everything on it, which normally I would love to take, I would have said no, because all I wanted was water. And Jesus is saying, it is good for you to thirst for me. Because when you are thirsty for me, you will have a one-track mind. When you are thirsty for me, that will allow you to live with urgency. Because all you are going to think about, all your energy, all your focus is going to be on me and the fact that one day I can satisfy, one day I can quench your thirst. The the city of Babylon is going to offer you all kinds of things that look like they are going to quench your thirst, but they they are falsehoods. They are hot coffee, which I love hot black coffee. But when I'm really thirsty for water, that's not the thing I want. It actually just makes it worse. Jesus is staying, stay, saying, stay thirsty, my friends. Now, here's what kind of stinks about that. If he is saying it is good to be thirsty, if we are saying, based on what he says here, that it is, it is good to be thirsty, that means that the things in our life that make us thirsty for Jesus are actually good. Now, here's what's really, really kind of crummy about that. What is it in your life that makes you thirsty for Jesus? Affluence, 
success, ease, comfort, great vacation, everything's falling into place, life is good. Is that, is that, are those the seasons where you're really thirsty for Jesus? Not, maybe. That would be awesome. But that's not the way it works in my life. Frustration, disappointment, suffering, sickness. Those are the things that make me thirst for Jesus. Failure. Failure, I, I, am, uh, I am maybe more afraid of failing than anything else. And yet it is when I fail that I am reminded that I cannot do it myself, that I have no power in and of myself to do what needs to be done, and I am desperate for someone who can do it for me. So here's the uncomfortable truth of Revelation 22. It might actually be the really hard things in your life that we need to thank God for every once in a while because they are the things that are keeping us thirsty for him. Stay thirsty, my friends. So let's just, um, let's just try and put a bow on the whole book of Revelation in like two and a half minutes. Here's the deal. The book of Revelation is a tale of two cities. My understanding is that's already taken. Thank you. English nerds. It is a tale of two cities. The, the, the story of Revelation is a tale of two cities. There is one city that looks really good, looks really attractive, Looks like it's going to satisfy all of our desires. Looks like it's going to quench all of our thirsts. Even John, in, from heaven, catches a vision of the city of Babylon, and he is amazed by it. But that city is full of overpromises and underdeliverances. The city of Babylon cannot give us what we are thirsting for. It cannot give us what we desire. In the end, the city of Babylon leads only to sadness, disappointment, frustration, and death. But there is another city, and that is the city of God. And right now, it looks small. It looks insignificant. It looks sometimes unclear. We're not even sure if it's actually there sometimes. But one day, the city of God will engulf the city of Babylon and Jesus will return and all things will be made new and our thirst will be quenched and the way things look right now is not the way they will ever look again. Here's the, here's the reality that is revealed in the book of Revelation. Here's the reframing of reality from the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. That's it. What is Revelation about? It's about that Jesus wins. But here is the truth. Here's, here is the message that is, just, that is just preached and taught over and over and over through the book of Revelation. You and I are here for a reason. He, Jesus has left us in the city of Babylon that we, might, that we might come alongside him, serve him in the way that he has called us to serve him, love others in the way he has called us to love them, and bring light into the darkness that would not come otherwise. We do that by living we do that by living intentional lives. We do that by inviting others in. And we do that by avoiding at all costs quenching our thirst for Jesus from something that is lesser. Let us live with urgency. Let us live with invitation. And stay thirsty, my friends. Amen? Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you there's so many things to thank you for. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how um, you have revealed yourself to us and not just yourself, but your plan. And even though we don't know every detail and we don't know all the time in God, we, uh, we take so much comfort and hope in the fact that 
you have promised that in the end, all things will be made new and that you will win. And God, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you allow us, your followers, us, those you have called to yourself, that you will empower us to live the lives that you have called us to live, to live with urgency, to live lives of invitation, to, to stay thirsty for you until you come again, whether that is this afternoon or a hundred million years from now. May you keep us faithful to the end. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.